You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, Stuart Goldsmith here. Welcome back to the show. This is another concompendium whilst I scurry around and scrabble about in the darkness writing a book. And oh my God, it's so great. It's 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 going to be so it's going to be so good. I'm on I think eighty five thousand words at the moment, and um, just listening back to God, just I spent all yesterday listening back to the Phil K episode when he talks about bullets no longer being appropriate. He's kind of his metaphor for. Uh, listen, I'm going to lose myself in a world of uh, reverie here. Um, let's get to this phenomenal Compendium episode with Shappy Corsandi, Chaparac Corsandi these days, but still Shappy to me because I'm her pal. And before we get into this, even if you go to tinyurl.com/slash/comedymudders, M-U-D-D-E-R-S comedy mudders, Chaparac and I, as well as uh, Jess Fosterkue, Ivor Graham, Josh Jones, Stuart Laws, Esther Manito, and I don't think I've forgotten anyone, um, are going to be doing a tough mudder. We're going to be doing a 5k tough mudder where they, you know, they try and kill you with guns as you go around. They sort of throw mud at you and people kind of shout at you and hit you with sticks and stuff whilst you attempt to do a 5k up a ramp in the rain or something. But we're doing it for women's aid. So go to tinyurl.com slash comedy mudders i'll put links on all my various websites and socials and link trees and everything else um but you can uh, support us doing that now to Chaparac. she is um she talks here this is such a beautiful phrase and she talks about how stand-up um is and was her second chance at the playground um and it's an incredibly from straight from the off it's an incredibly reflective episode um she talks about constantly putting herself in situations uh where people were unkind to her that she wouldn't stand for now um she talks about wishing she had someone like herself as a friend when she was starting out and we've got lots and lots of specific comedy stuff her theory on why women disappear from the open mic circuit uh, and on the success of the book that she was launching at the time, um, and whether or not she kept her promises to her 10-year-old self. It's absolute gold standard ComCom, so I'm very pleased to bring you this ComCompendium episode. There's a few more of these coming out um, whilst I churn on with my frightening word count. Um, I hope you're enjoying them. I'm really pleased to be able to give you a bit of an insight into... Or a bit of not an insight exactly, but I'm I'm gleaning so much from the podcast going through writing this book that it's really lovely to be able to go, hey, remember this? Remember that? Do you remember that Acaster one from 10 years ago? My God. So uh, uh, more of this sort of thing, um, but not a huge amount more. I've got fantastic episodes in the can now with Tom Horton, with Veer Das. Oh my God, you've got to watch Landing, uh, Veer Das's new special on Netflix. The payoff of that show, Mwah! so theatrical, brilliant. 
Um, and uh, also John Hastings returns. Those are all in the can. I'm booking a few more at the moment, but I'm trying to do so sparingly because I've got so much on. Here is Chaparak Corsandi. I've always described stand-up comedy as um, my second chance at the playground and my yellow brick road. Um, I've always seen it as a yellow brick road that no matter what, no matter what failure, what pain, what humiliation, what doors are slammed in my face, I will stay on this road and not veer away from it. And I feel lucky that I had that feeling because I think you need to have that feeling to um, make a living from something that you you can't, you can't not do. It's it's a compulsion, isn't it? Stand up, isn't yeah, it? I think so. Yeah, it's a compulsion. And um, when I don't do it for a while, I'm horrible. Like I went to Myanmar with my partner and my kids, and when I came back, I mean, it was amazing. I went to Myanmar, flipping neck. I just saw incredible things. I had not really travelled um, unless it's with stand up yeah. and doing overseas gigs yeah weird isn't it you feel like you've got oh god i've seen the world and you go did you or yeah. did you just see a dressing room somewhere I, remote you, yeah absolutely <laughs> that that's it nail on head and and we went to Myanmar and my boyfriend is a is um one of those committed backpacker types that doesn't feel he's been on a journey unless he's on a rickety bus with a with a chicken on his lap you know that kind and we did all that and and i was like oh i get it i get the traveling bug i get it need to go home now and do comedy thank you yeah (laughs) yeah. thank you very much other cultures thank you so much thank you for the for the opportunity i need to and i was yeah and i came back and i had a bit of a yeah because we were away for quite a while well, two two weeks, which is a long time. I don't, a long time when you're an addict. Uh, yeah, it, it, absolutely. It was a long time away from. I I just started to get really over enthusiastic with people we met in Myanmar. Um, and before I did stand up, I was a lot more gregarious socially. You know, I was the first to arrive at a party, last to leave. Um, and over time, I, I realised that whatever that need was was sated by by the job. And when I got married. It was almost awkward because that year, I got married in 2006 and that was my breakthrough year where I did a show that hit, um, that really worked in Edinburgh called Asylum Speaker. And it was the first time that I'd got loads of press that people were talking about me. It was my first time. So when I got married, it felt like, sorry, everyone. It was awkward because I thought I'm now asking everyone to look at me for a whole day. And so... I was kind of quiet on my wedding day because I felt like it, it just doesn't seem like a very British thing that you, all summer in Edinburgh you've been like, da-da! And, and now you're standing there in a big frock and people have to look at you again. It was, it was, it was interesting. Well, because you were being a different self I just, at your wedding to the self you were... I, I don't quite understand how you mean. I, I mean, it felt very, very self-indulgent. Like I look at my friends who aren't performers and they go to town with their wedding days. I see. And I realise, of course, because this is your day. That's your time to shine. Um, But every time we step on a stage, it's our time to shine. Obviously, sometimes we don't shine at all. Sure, but that's the the opportunity. Hazard of the trade. You can always trip up. They still clap, even if it's grudgingly. (laughs) You can still trip up walking down the aisle or something. So it felt, it felt um, in, you know, like 
birthdays and stuff are quieter now because I, I think, look, my job is all about me, 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 me. It, it just feels a bit crass to then go, and I want this special day when I have a big cake and all of you have to bring me presents. Just felt a bit like that. Yeah. So what do you, what are you getting out of the experience of being on stage going me, me, me? Is it that you are, and obviously this, you know, to any comic, you're going to get a, a thousand different things. Yeah. But is it that you are, when you, when you said before, you come from, um, you know, your yellow brick road allows you a place where there is no, you know, I don't, I forget your exact words, but there's no kind of bullying or insults or, or humiliation or stuff like that. No veering off the road. Yeah. So, so did you, were, were you attracted to the idea of performing because you were coming from a place of feeling humiliated or bullied or insulted? Yeah. Well, we all to an extent, what we all to an extent, I know, I know that it's, it's a, stereotype of comics that you feel like the outsider but I really did um starting from being tiny being the being the second child of a very funny um um, second child of a very funny uh dad a very famous dad uh in Iran and um and having an older brother who was only 16 months older than me so not enough of a gap for me to have much of my own identity and I was like a little duckling just following my big brother around I I didn't make friends easily because my brother made friends and then his friends would be forced to take me on too um I just followed my brother around and also him and his friends are sometimes mean to me you know when we hit started to hit adolescence I then I was fat you know I got the nickname incredible bulk um I was a sort of what is it someone someone wrote on Facebook the other day um pull a pig boys that play pull a pig in pubs and stuff like come and chat you up as a joke jesus so i had that done to me um when when i got to my teens and and just yeah guys pretending to fancy me and then laughing and um you know never being one of the cool kids uh never being invited to the parties um and looking back on it all it, it can't have been that the world was against me there was something perhaps about my ego that made it all about me to an extent, because what I realize now is I constantly put myself in situations where people were unkind to me. There were people that were very kind, but perhaps I didn't have the, perhaps I thought less of them because they were nice to me because that's a self-esteem thing isn't it it's like you're very nice to me therefore you're an idiot because you value me what a twat because I'm a I'm you know what am I you know why you and I look back on all that now and I remember it for my children I remember it because I had a friend when I was very little right up until she moved to America when I was 14 that she would systematically bully me and every dad begged to go to a house again and now with my children I think why do you want to invite so-and-so around every time he's around you round, no no invite another kid that's that's nice to you and I'm really aware of that like your friends and way into my adult life I realize I made friends like with people who actually weren't terribly nice and were mean to me and weren't good at friendship and I've had to see, actually, these people are good at friendship. These people are good. I'm going to go with these people. They might be quieter. They might be less exciting on the surface. But I've been shallow out of um, 
some kind of insecurity in that I've wanted to be with the exciting people, the ones that dance on the tables, the loudest ones at uni, the most flamboyant ones, but they're not the ones that are there for you in a crisis, you know. Um, so I think with stand-up, when I say it was my second chance at the playground, uh, it's my second, yeah, it's my chance of being in charge and and enjoying that. And I'm giving you a really long answer. It's a great answer. It's I a think really it's, long answer. I think it's really insightful to, to be able to look back at your past and go, yes, maybe those issues that I had with the world were the result of choices I'd made. I, I think that, and I don't know if I, I feel like this has been in my head a lot recently. So apologies to you, the listener, if you've heard me say this on a recent episode. Um, but I think that what I regard as my really awful school days, I chatted to one of the few friends I've stayed in touch with since then recently. And, uh, and he said, no, no, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. It was a water off a duck's back. It was great. And, and that really made me go, whoa, in, in a way that I hadn't, kind of uh thought about before it made me go how can someone who had near as damn it the same experience as me not have regarded the school we went to as this awful place that crushed people's yeah, hopes yeah and yeah, dreams, yeah, yeah you know? absolutely and actually i think it was to do with um my reactions to things and my inability to ask for help so i Absol- developed this, oh, this groove of pretending it. i knew what was going on and then being very loud and confident that i knew what was going on and i didn't you and- got it it's that inability to ask for help that shyness and saying i'm not I'm not doing well here and i learned to do that to ask for help quite late late much later on in life these this this learning that you have this insight that you have into that that version of the story of you as a kid. Is that something you have happened upon yourself through your thinking or your writing, or is it the result of like therapy or, you know, NLP or long chats with, you know, a, a kind of mentor or something like that? Cause I, I, I feel like it for me, it's therapy. It's like years and years of therapy. And then finally finding the right guy for me who made me go, Oh, Oh, actually, when you look at it like that, Oh yeah. You know, being led mm. towards a discovery rather than having someone go, it, it was probably this. Yeah. NLP. It was NLP. Yeah. Uh, do you know what? No, that's really fascinating. Okay, so this is, I know, I know next to nothing about it. I interviewed Jimmy Carr recently. He mentioned it. It's come up once or twice. And even yeah. as I said it then, I thought, oh God, they're going to think I'm obsessed. No, but how funny. It's changing your thinking. And then I had CBT. Um, last year I had, um, I, I had to have lots of things because I had a bit of a break down. I say that very slowly. I got. Um, <laughs> Are you saying that slowly out of deciding whether or not you want that to be known? Yeah, yeah but I'm not going to ask you to edit this because I, sure. I know you're really busy. You've got a new baby. <laughs> I'm not going to put that on you. That's but very no, much appreciated. But it, but it was, um, I went to see um, a cognitive behaviour therapist and I went to see um, post-traumatic stress disorder um, therapy and... And the thing is, it was, there wasn't like a light bulb moment with, with any of this. And I, I turned 43 yesterday. So a lot of this is growing older and being able to look at the bigger picture. And that, um, all the therapy that I, and also I'm really crap at therapy. I sort of had this incredible therapist, but she had to leave London and I never got another one. You know, it's like everything else in my life. I leave so many things half done, um, unfinished. Um, and, Having children really made me look at the bigger picture. Getting divorced um, broke me in ways that I have never been able to describe 
creatively in any of my stand-up. I should never have done jokes about it. I think the third live at the Apollo that I did, I was in such incredible pain. I should not have done it. I should have been in a sanatorium somewhere. Um, And I learned defeat. And it was, I learned it kicking and screaming. Like, I think when my marriage broke down, it was the first time in my life where I had to accept failure. It's taken me years to accept it. But all of it, all of that experience has enabled me to think, well, either I curl up and die or I, I look at, I see the bigger picture. Um, and yeah, I have had mentors. I've had incredible, um, friendships with people that I, I wasn't able to have before. Um, as I mentioned, I made, I made bad choices in friendship and then I had this, I sort of woke up a little bit. And I made good friends and I had an amazing conversations. Weirdly with men, I never used to make friends with men very easily. Um, unless I wanted to sleep with them. I, I, I now sound like, like a big sexist with, with a arse crack hanging out. Sorry if I, <laughs> if I sound like that. But um, I think having an older brother who te- I love my brother dearly. Um, he was my hero. He is my hero. But he teased me relentlessly growing up. And so did his friend. So I think I've, I found men, oh, teasing. I don't like teasing. That's why I don't like panel shows. I'm not very good on panel shows because I'm like, oh, you're, we were all getting on in the green room and now you're teasing me. I don't mm. like it. Um, but then I made friends with sensitive men and, and, and nice men and who taught me things and, and um, made me realize uh, that things could be okay, you know, and... So that yeah, I did have mentors. I think, yeah. And and the NLP stuff that you did, you mentioned, and we, we sort of not explored that any further. Is that something are you happy to talk about? Your, yeah, the, I, the depth of your involvement in that because well, it's something that I'm very, I'm kind of, I for me, always the name is terrible, and yeah. it always made me think of like, oh, it sounds a bit Scientology. Yeah, and and actually, if it was called visualizing stuff in a sort yeah. of non-threatening way yeah. to realize actually what you actually want rather than what you think you want. Yeah. You know, if there was a word for that, I might go, oh yeah, no, I might have got, in, got interested in it a long time ago. Yeah, neuro-linguistic programming for me and cognitive behavior therapy um, for me allowed me to see that I had choices in my thinking. I didn't know I had choices in my thinking and you cannot think that way and thinking that way makes you feel this way. You don't want to feel that way. To change your thinking. I'm not a religious person. In fact, I'm the president of the British Humanist Association. I quipped earlier on. Is yes. that like being the Pope for atheists? It is. I'm going to repeat it then because I, am, I thought it was I funny. I am chief human. <laughs> chief um, human. Touch me and your first one will be a boy. Um, <laughs> no, it's um, the, the Zoroastrian faith, which is what um, all Iranians come from, uh, was the first monotheistic religion. And I'm not one for religion, but I love the... Um, the premise of the religion is good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. And that is the CBT triangle. You yes, know? right. And that's also, I did, um, I never finished my 12 steps, but I'm constantly in a 12 step program. Okay. Um, and all of that hugely is to get rid of stinking thinking, get rid of your, your, the negative thoughts that drag you down. And I learned that there's, it's no accident that my career I, I had a career in 2006 because I started going to a 12-step program and I woke up, you know, I, in all of my 20s, I was in an utter fog of um, addiction. 
and um is it are you alluding to alcoholism specifically um, eating disorders okay, gotcha. and and binge drinking but you know without boring to death about uh with with um recovery speak alcohol sure. wasn't my primary addiction I gotcha. my primary addiction was um, eating disorder uh I once talked about this publicly and then and then someone re- mentioned it randomly in an interview. The thing is, when you talk about addiction or anything like that, like I don't know how Russell Brand handles every interview. They say, so you were who an addict? Mm. And I, I think he's really strong in his recovery because the, the danger is if you talk about the addiction you had, it's like fine now because I'm okay, but I relapse a lot. And I was on Five Live and the we were talking to um, a woman who self-harmed and I couldn't speak because I couldn't pretend that I didn't know her thought process. And the presenter looked at me and wrote on a piece of paper because she was like, whoa, this is heavy. I said, say something. And so I said to the caller, I said, um, I know what this is like for you. And I, from my own personal experience, blah, 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 blah. And the presenter said, what is your personal experience, Shappy? And I said, well, I'm chronically bulimic and I was locked in an eating disorder from the age of 15 to the age of 32 and we spoke about it and that was the first time I did it publicly I felt like I'd come out it was a really important moment for me and the presenter sort of wrote me a note and said you're so brave and they all came and gave me hugs afterwards about a year later the same presenter was interviewing a load of comedians at the Edinburgh Festival. Completely different vibe. You know, mm. we're in a beautiful sunny day in this BBC box, all giggling and laughing about our shows. And suddenly, out of nowhere, she went, so Shappy, you're bulimic. How are you coping with that in Edinburgh? And she pulled the rug out from under my feet. It was horrible. And I realised, God, I've made myself so vulnerable because I don't want I don't want people asking me about it whenever they like. Mm. Um so that's why I'm not going to tell you that my addiction was a food-related bulimia. I was absolutely—I lost my twenties to bulimia, so I don't—I don't want to tell you that. Okay. Uh, and I real and I relapse, and and the the thing is about it is that I I don't like trying to explain addiction or my disease to anyone who doesn't get it. It's not for anyone else to get. You know, I've had people going, yeah, but you're not fat or we all feel, we all feel like we over it. Oh, I'm like that sometimes. I think, oh, I wish I could puke it all out. You don't get it. And that's okay. It's not my job to explain it to you. But I will say it took me years and years, a stupid amount of my adult life to realize that throwing up was the tip of the iceberg. I, I thought that was the problem. That was the thing itself. Yeah. Rather than a symptom. Absolutely. Gotcha. And then I went, oh, I see what's happening here. I don't know where one meal begins and, the, and another one ends. I had no idea when um, when to stop drinking, when to stop eating. And I was never in a place where I had any clarity. So, of course, I had fucked up relationships. Of course, I made friends with people who harmed me because that's my whole life was, was self-harming. And, um, yeah, so... And 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 uh, and I was trying to make it as a stand-up. What a fool! I mean, um, not a fool. <laughs> That's negative. Why, you, why do why do you say that? Why do you say what a fool? Because the idea of of becoming a stand-up itself is so was so impossible to you. Absolutely, and and also um, it's such a vulnerable place to put yourself in. Like I would, like I look like I'm, I'm friends now with comedians like um, you know like Sarah Pascoe and all those guys, and I'm. 
I love them. And I have a slight envy as well, because when I was starting out, I was so locked in bulimia, it, it muffles all communication with the outside world. And I didn't know how to make friends with other comedians the way I can now. So even though I love it and I'm, I feel so blessed and I just adore pretty much every comic, I feel sad for myself that I wasn't able to make these connections and have the, this, um, this support. And, uh, when early on, I was just locked away in my own fog. Um, and, and I, I have to work hard not to beat myself up about that loss. And in fact, I wrote a book, my, my book. Um, thanks for mentioning it. It's, uh... <laughs> we, we were going to get to it. <laughs> well, I was because obviously it's about a young girl with a, with, with I mean, a, I, with, yeah. I don't uh, want to give anything away. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's about an 18 year old alcoholic. And my book hugely is my way to create, creatively salvage some of my own youth to say it was all worth it because I wrote this, <laughs> you know, it's kind of, I didn't want to make my twenties a total waste of time, but it could, none of it was a waste of time. Of course it wasn't. So this is Shappy. Fantastic to have her on the show. Um, and uh, just a reminder, go to tinyurl.com slash comedy mudders, like mothers, but muddy ones, M-U-D-D-E-R-S, comedy mudders, um, to support Women's Aid by uh, donating to myself, uh, Shaparak, uh, also Jess Fosterkue, Ivo Graham, Joss Jones, Esther Manito and Stuart Laws. Two Stuarts on one team. No one said it couldn't be done because no one thought there were two Stuarts with the proper spelling. Thank you. Um, so support us there. You can go, of course, to the Insiders Club if you would like to support the podcast with a regular monthly subscription, which can be from as little as £2 or as much as, I think it goes as high as £80. But of course, no one does that. Could you be first? Uh, go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And let's not forget, uh, as the handy little uh, micro dynamic injection ad at the beginning of this show perhaps told you um, that uh, my special is coming out on the 23rd of February. It's a worldwide digital premiere and uh, it's on a platform called Moment, which means that we can all watch it together at the same time. And if you pay a little bit of extra cash, you get to do an online after party with me and we all hang out in a room and uh, I will know some of you, I'm sure, and others of you I will not know and others will be complete strangers. And I hope it's not eggy. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be lovely. I I'm just can't wait to watch the show knowing that you're going to talk to me about the show afterwards. I think it'll be so much fun. Um, I'm so proud of it. It's called I Need You Alive. I think it should be pronounced through gritted teeth. <laughs> I think the title of the show is I Need You Alive. Um, but uh, go to comedianscomedian.com or indeed stuartgoldsmith.com to find out more about that. Um, and last thing before we get back to Shaprak or Sandy is I did since I last spoke to you. I've done my first eco presentation. I've been um, uh, I've been talking, as you will know, if you're a regular listener uh, to businesses and other interested parties, charities and all sorts of people about resilience from the perspective of comedians. And it has become quite the thing. And I've got a new talk, a new presentation that I do, which is kind of deliberately funnier and uplifting. And it's all about trying to cope with anxiety in the face of the climate crisis and climate distress. So if you work in the fields of sustainability and you think that it would be useful if I came to your business and spoke to your... Basically, 
you can use me to convince the top brass to actually care more um, by getting a comedian to come in and say the unsayable about climate change. So if that interests you, if you're a a director of sustainability or know anyone who is, uh, put them in touch. I'll put some blurb about it on the website, stuartgoldsmith.com. That's all for now. Let's get back to Chaparak Corsandi's promises to her 10-year-old self. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I'm aware that when I was an early stand-up, when I was just getting into it, I kind of, I I had another group of friends. I had my busking gang and I was like, I feel safe with these people. So at Edinburgh, I would often hang out with them as opposed to a lot of the comics. I remember that. Yeah, do you? Yeah, I remember you had your your sort of street Yeah, there was quite a lot of my dirty ragtag Baker Street Irregulars, you know. And uh, and that was great and I loved it and I don't regret that time spent Mm. with them. But I do regret that I didn't kind of plunge myself as immediately into the stand-up community. And yeah. I'm just wondering about, I, I, I just felt like, I really appreciate you saying that because I think that's like it's something I, I kind of like, no, I, I make myself a bit vulnerable if I say that. But mm. I think there will be lots of comics every so often. I don't know if you get this. I'll get um, like a Facebook message from another comic who I don't know all that well, but probably mm. if we did a tour together for a week, we'd go, oh, we really get on. Yeah. You know, but you don't necessarily have those opportunities. Every so often you just get a little message going, oh, I heard what you said about so-and-so thinking of you yeah and you go oh yeah that's good yeah yeah absolutely it's it is really lovely and then you I don't know what part of it is a part of it is I, I went to see uh, where did I go to see I went to see Sarah uh, Pascoe the other day um at the Soho Theatre and there was a gang of us it was like me Wendy Wason Catherine Ryan and Jess Foster Cube and I was having such a great night, such a great time. And I thought, why didn't I have this at 26 when I could really have done with these female friendships or friendships, you know? And I realized, well, for one thing, there, there were fewer women there. And for another thing, I was locked in my fault. Fewer female comics when you were 26, yeah. you mean? Yeah, oh, okay. fewer female comics when I was 26. And a really weird thing happened to me. That I've only recently told um, people, but for ages I was so paranoid. You know that paranoid feeling where you think, oh God, everyone hates me. I know if you're familiar with that feeling, but um, which is quite an egotistical feeling to have because it's like, to why? To imagine they're even thinking they're, about to you. To imagine yeah, they're even thinking about you, you know. Um, but I, when I first um, started stand up, I mean, this doesn't really matter, but I happen to have only have slept with two people in my entire life, right, when I was 23 or something. And I did a comedy course 
Oh, I don't, I don't want to betray any confidence. I, I don't want to make anyone look bad 20 years on, 20 odd years on. But I got a phone call from someone. So I'm a brand new fledgling comedian, bright eyed, not very bushy tailed. Um, and then there's slightly older female comedians. And I'm thinking, hey, they'll be nice to me. And they were not nice to me. And then I got a phone call saying, just to let you know, you're getting a reputation on the circuit for being a bit of a slut. I was like, what? Well, there's a rumor going around that you flirt a lot with the male comedians and the other girls don't like it. Now, if I had the self-confidence that I do now, I would have torn that person that called me up to give me that little bit of poison and you asshole, right? There was no need for me to know that information, but I didn't. I went, oh no, for a decade I thought, oh my God, who is it? Who's been talking about me? Years later, I find out that there was a rumour going around that I was sleeping with Dylan Moran. To this day, Stuart, I have never seen him in the flesh. I've never <laughs> met Dylan Moran. I have never seen... But some something or other happened where some rumour started a- about me. And this is the days before internet, right? <laughs> oh, a real rumour. A real rumour. that Oh, yeah, she's such a, you know, she's such a climber. She's bonking Dylan Moran. And I was, you know, I was really, in, like, innocent isn't the right word, but I was really um, naive back then. And I just went into a shell even more. And so... It didn't seem like a friendly place, but now it just seems a lot more friendly. But again, that's because of my confidence. Like if someone's negative towards me now, I won't have it. But back then I'd put them in an elevated position and I'd give them power. It's almost an incredible, that rumour is a very kind of Mallory Towers rumour, isn't it? That's like a, do you know what I mean? That's like a girl's school, That that is taking comedy which should be all of our escape from school and turning it right back into fucking school again absolutely absolutely and um but then I, I look back on that time and I think I was drinking just like a crazy lunatic <laughs> you were um, about to say I may have fucked Dylan Moran <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I did not he is hot though but I've just Ooh. never been in, in the same room as him in my life to this day um, and, and I just sort of look back on that and I just see it as perhaps petty jealousies, pe- people wanting to shoot someone down. And I see it now. I see it now when, um, you know, um, there's a couple of newer male comedians that I've that have confided and they're doing, I don't want to mention any names here, mm-hmm. but are doing really brilliantly now. Confided with me on Facebook that oh, he'd gone to this gig and, and this sort of such and such comic had been really nasty to him. And I wrote back saying, mate, you've ruffled feathers you're obviously good you're obviously people see something in you and you're ruffling feathers and people are scared that you'll leave the sludge and they want to yank you back down again and be mindful of that and then you will learn who is your friend and who isn't you've got to know your enemy and you know god I wish I had a friend like me when I started I know I know some journalists will will listen to this and go sure. can you write an article for blah 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 magazine about my bulimia hell um I had to to promote my book they asked me to um a couple of um you know very quality uh, women's magazines asked me to write about um my own personal experience of bulimia and um talking about it is fine but I think don't quote me I think it was Socrates that said the written word has no father I love that. You can't, once you've written something down, it's gone. And, you know, and people don't hear your intonation. People don't hear your thought process. Well, they do, but 
um, you can't stand up for it once it's gone. But with talking, you can. I feel yeah. more comfortable talking about personal things than writing about them. So I had to not write them and and maybe I'll sell a few less books, <laughs> but not making myself as vulnerable. So were there attempts then to deal with things like the bulimia or things like the rumor or, you know, what the difficult, the more difficult aspects of your life. Like I, I, I think in terms of your material, I think what you're most known for is material about family mm. and material about kind of social politics and mm. how we all get on and stuff like that. Was that, were you, did you make kind of overt writing about like, I want to tackle this thing that's making me unhappy? Um, I've done that before. It's never worked. I, I, I once um, tried to do some stuff about being bulimic and I went into massive relapse and I've mm. learned no one needs to know, you know, I'll talk to you about it and everyone else who listens to the podcast, but I don't, that's not what I need to communicate to an audience because um, it's something that I still battle and I still live with and I still, I'm just not, I'm just, my recovery is not strong enough to do that. It's like, again, talking about Russell Brand and other people who talk about it openly um, and brilliantly and bravely. Um, for me, it's, I may, maybe it's, uh, this, this is going to sound really horrific, but I'm going to say it anyway. But I think because bulimia is, is it's throwing up, I think a lot of people just a, a turn, like, are turned off by the very idea mm. uh, of, 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 of trying to understand it or, or see it as the same as sticking a needle in your arm or firing up a crack pipe. But in terms of how it affects your life, there's no difference whether it's booze, whether it's crack, whether it's sex, whether it's um, whatever you do to self-medicate, numb yourself, disconnect has a profound impact on your life. But because of the, the very sort of visceral nature of bulimia, I think people don't even want to... It's a horrible image, you know? Not that, you know, heroin's a pretty image, um, but there's just something about throwing up that it, it's not something that I can ever see myself communicating in any meaningful way about and when you when you said that's not what i need to be saying on stage mm. that's an interesting way of of phrasing that yeah what what is it that you need to be saying on stage i need to be saying things that help me make a connection with people the the, the kick i get from stand-up is um being a, in a room full of people who on the surface have nothing in common with me but then finding a really human space of understanding one another um, and drawing them, and you would have heard every stand-up talking about this, I'm sure, drawing them into your world. And that understanding is what I strive to achieve. That connection, that connection is the golden place. It's the joyous place. It's the, it's the, it's the happy, it's the drug, that connection with, people that if I met on jury service I'd just go what um but but you end up loving each other a bit 
I can't not point out that literally no other comedian has ever said that. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, that's, it may surprise you to know. And, and particularly, I, one, one of the things I love about having these conversations is when people go, oh, I don't have a system, and then they lay out their system, you know, and they go, well, I'm sure everyone says this. It's because of X, Y, Z, and no one ever yeah. says that. I mean, I, I feel like I'm quite similar to that myself. I, do, mm. I think the kind of the, the communion, if I can use a, mm. a terribly non-atheist word. That's fine. Um, and I'm not religious myself, but I do think that shared, a shared joy, you know, mm. a shared experience. But of course, this is the crazy thing about stand-up, isn't it? To what extent are we sharing it? And to what extent are we kind of instigating it? Manufacturing. And, then, and then manufacturing ground. it and then, yeah. and then sucking it dry. Yeah, <laughs> you know? manufacturing common ground. Yep, there's that. Manufacturing common ground. Let's talk about that for a second. Because something I've noticed listening to your, your show recently that you sent me that copy of the Soho show. It strikes me, I'm not accusing you of manufacturing anything, but it strikes me that your position in relation to an audience is really charmingly fluid. Like sometimes you're low status and sometimes you're high status and then you kick yourself back down and sometimes you're, do you know what I mean? And that, that to me is maybe an example of, of like you are, you are exceptionally good at finding common ground with people, and that's a charming phrase, with people that you might be surprised to do jury service with. It's my, it's my raison d'etre. It really is. Um, it's something I've been um, obsessed with from as long as I remember being alive. Like, like every single human being on the planet, I will fucking understand them if it kills me. I've always had this this really profound uh, desire to um, manufacture common ground <laughs> with everybody. I don't why, know. Why is that? Is that so that you can stop them humiliating you, or is it is that from the same sort of it relieves me. It's like bloodletting. And it frustrates me when I can't do it. And so that's the gorgeous thing about stand-up. If you fuck it up, you go back again the next night and you do it again. And it sates me. It sates something in me. Sometimes I think it might have um, something to do with um, this idea of being isolated um, and massively, addiction is self-isolation, right? And um, this feels ugly, this feels painful, but it's familiar. So I shall stay here. That That's addiction, right? Um, that's part of addiction. And I don't want people going, oh, that's your experience of addiction, yeah, yeah, sure, not sure, anyone sure. else's, right? Yeah, anyway. that's a framework of looking yes, at addiction. Okay. Yes, um, My auntie Nadia, um, who's upstairs, um, she and I, my brother, are more or less the same age. And I remember being in Iran. One of my memories of Iran was my uncle gave my auntie Nadia, who would have been about uh, five, and my brother, who would also be five, and me, who would have been three and a half, four, a camera each to play with. And their cameras worked. Mine was broken. Had It was just a hollow shell. And I remember my brother saying, Shappies is broken. And my uncle saying, ah, she's little. She won't care. I never forgot that. And I remember crying, but not being able to articulate why. It's like, she won't care. She doesn't matter. <laughs> that, that feeling never left me. And then we moved to Britain when I was uh, almost four, three and a half, four. And I remember not being able to speak English. And I'm a talker. I like talking. And suddenly I was in a place where 
I couldn't speak the language. And I thought language, because I didn't have the concept of language, I thought English was gobbledygook that people spoke and other people magically understood. So I would speak gobbledygook. And uh, this kid in my primary school said, I don't understand you. And I was like, what do you mean you don't understand me? I'm clearly saying, do you want to go to the sandpit and play? And you're not understanding me, so I'm just going to cry. I spent a lot of time crying, a lot of time feeling misunderstood. I had that need to perform at an early age. And the teacher said, everyone everyone, uh, could sing a um, nursery rhyme at the end of class if they wanted to and one day the teacher said chaparak would you like to sing and i got yes and no muddled up and i said no but i meant yes Stuart. and she goes okay not to worry sally would you would you sing the song at the end of the and i remember crying going i wanted to sing the song but i don't know my yes and no but i know baba black sheep i can sing baba black sheep <laughs> so um all those things that were my ego being ignored um, yeah. and being um, left by the wayside, you know, going to to somebody's house where all the kids were playing in a room. And I went to the loo and I came back and to be funny, they'd locked the door. So I couldn't get back in this room. And I was knocking going, oh dear, they seem to have locked the door by accident. Hello. And then I heard them all giggling going, don't let her in, don't let her in, don't let her in. And that stayed with me. And weirdly... This is, she won't mind me saying this. This is, oh, should I change her name? Okay, this is a girl called Victoria. You don't need to know her surname. This girl, a girl called Victoria, who's older than me, it was her house, and she locked me out of this room. And I would have been about eight or nine, and I could hear them all, her saying, don't let her in. I was so distraught. I just sat with the grown-ups, just silently crying, just feeling like shit on someone's shoe. Fast forward a million years, I'm at the Jonathan Ross show as a guest. (laughs) (laughs) I'm at the Jonathan Ross show as a guest. And this beautiful woman comes up to me going, Shafi, do you remember me? I'm Victoria blah-de-blah. And she worked on the show. And I instantly, instantly went, you locked me out of a door when we were kids and you wouldn't let me play. And it really, and she was mortified because she's heaven on earth. She's a wonderful person. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and it was so lovely. You know, I, I see her now. I went round with my kids to her house for dinner (laughs) and it's really interesting. It's just little flashes of my childhood where I felt in, in a lot of ways fuel this, this desire to connect because I was disconnected and always striving to. And I have to say though, now I'm, you know, right now I'm so relaxed about things like that. Like now when someone doesn't return my phone call, it doesn't invite me to a party. I go, Oh, well they're busy. Mm-hmm. You know, geez, I, I had a party the other day. I forgot to invite like really close friends of mine just cause I'm an idiot and really disorganized. And the, the, the joy of nothing keeping me awake at night, no niggling insecurities keeping me awake at night. It's, it's a sweet freedom that, <laughs> that I've, I've really only had since I've been in um, 12-step recovery. So does stand-up comedy, and let's talk about the difference between stand-up and writing your book. Does mm. it, does it, it sounds like from, from, from the conversation we've had thus far, it sounds like stand-up cures or has cured or alleviates temporarily perhaps all of your issues is that true um no it doesn't but it it gives me 
But the way I used to feel about it was that, like, like now, now I tour, so it's longer, but on the circuit, it was 20 minutes where I didn't have to deal with anything but that 20 minutes. And now when I do my tour shows, you know, I've got two little kids, I'm a single mom, in that hour and a half, no one can call on me for anything. It is my time. What I find about stand-up now, and I literally, this has been in the last two years. So if you think I've been doing this for 17 years, in the last two years, I feel that I'm finally becoming creative with it. Like I'm finally bringing my heart into it. Whereas before it was such a, such a battle with a lot of stuff. Like now it's become my fun and my, my, my emotions are, my confidence has soared and it's given me the freedom to bring my emotions out in it, which has made it better. And it feels more creative. It feels a lot more creative rather than my need. It's, it's letting go of your ego, learning to let, I haven't let go of my ego, but learning to do that more and more makes me funnier and better at my job. I think, um, I saw, um, Dr. Brown. Have you seen Dr. Brown? Many times he's been on the show. Great. Yeah. He changed my life because, um, because he gives love, he gives love. Whereas before I tried to take love, and understanding that giving love is so much more satisfying as a stand-up. And I, I was one of those people uh, who was really snooty about you too, right? Money <laughs> doesn't pay his tax, right? Okay. I went to see you two with my um, Bono-loving boyfriend, and I got it. I got it. The man gives love. He gave love to, he made every single one of us in the O2 feel like we were special. And then I, cause I, I watch singers a lot. I think singing is incredible because they're not afraid of emotion. I, I've always been like, ah, oh, I don't, I don't want you to see my real emotions. Um, I went to see Prince last year. I was lucky enough. I can't say blessed because I'm president of the British Human Association. <laughs> Uh, to go and see him at Coco, which is a really small, intimate venue in London. And I was so close to Prince, it was embarrassing. It was almost like, sorry, Prince, we're right up in your face. <laughs> so try not to let it distract you. And that man gives to his audience. He gives and he gives. And, and, and what he got out of it was giving love to people. And it's not a surprise that they're both deeply religious men. Prince was a deeply religious man, so is Bono. I'm not religious, but I, um, I believe in people, and I believe in loving one another under the under the huge umbrella of friendship, whether you're a stranger or a friend. And tapping into that has been my journey in the last year. How do you do that as a stand-up? How do you how do you give love as a stand-up when stand-up is so commonly I don't understand this. I'm frustrated by this. These people did a, you know, these people should be ridiculed. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of negative. Is, is that, mm. is it, is it, what do you mean by giving love as a stand up? How do you synthesize that? How do you do the, which, what I'm sure we all want to do as stand ups is the equivalent of a long note in a song that we wrote that everyone knows, yeah. you know, when you, ah, you know, kind of belt it out. Like we all want to do that. How do you, how do you incorporate that into a medium? like stand up how do you start to 
look at children like if you sit, I mean you've, you you I imagine you're the kind of person that's always really good with kids anyway but kids are in the moment and kids don't hate kids don't hate all kids want is for everything to be nice for everybody toddlers they grow up a bit and tend to bastards but <laughs> but if you look at the way kids are they stay in that moment and everything in that moment is so important like i'm looking at this this jar of jam next to me a, a, a little kid is fascinated by the very jamness of this jar of jam because all it cares about is this present moment and it lo- and it might love that jar of jam because that could be a toy that could be a plaything that could be something to to have an adventure with right and so this is might sound a bit fridge magnety um but it it's about letting go of hate even around things you hate that doesn't make sense, but I'm trying to make it make sense for me in my stand up. Like I used to get so, I, I still do, like I get so angry with, um, no, angry is not the right word. I get so hurt by, um, injustice in our government, for example, in our press. I get so hurt by it. And I used to meditate on that pain and I used to dislike people who, um, I used to be scared of people who um, had a point of view um, that, in my view, hurt other people. But then you learn that you can still have that opinion, but you can try and put yourself in their shoes and not hate them. And that is where love comes in. And that's where a, a manufactured common ground can come in, where you can say your point of view and you can be exactly who you are and say true to your principles without tearing someone down so viciously that it hurts yourself as you're doing it. I, I, I understand you. Could you give me an example of the difference between a bit of material from 10 years ago, maybe, and a bit of material from now that could illustrate what you're talking about? Okay. Um, it's funny, I was watching, my boyfriend made me watch that. I don't like watching myself, but I watched a YouTube video of my asylum speaker show 10 years ago and I cringed. And he was going, it's not bad, you've moved on, but also comedy has moved on. Also society has yeah, moved right, on. Yeah, right, yeah. Society has moved on. That's why those jokes don't stand up anymore. At the time, it, it you know, it, it hit a mark. It was zeitgeisty. It is not now. Um, so... You know, I had a, a joke say, um, oh, about how I, um, my parents took me to brownies because they thought it was, a, it was an after school club for Asian kids. Now, nowadays, I don't think I would do a joke like that. Okay. Um, or, oh, oh God, it's horrible, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to talk about my past shows. <laughs> yuck, but yuck, I mean, yuck. We're, we're specifically with a view to like this discovery of I want to give love. Mm. So something from your current. All right. So work, where, um, where you think this is a good example? I can't. Of- I can't give an example of a joke because I can't. I feel like a little bit of a rabbit head headlights. But for example, okay, I'll tell you. I got really, really upset with this proud to be English hashtag, 
right? Because I felt it excluded me and I felt that it was deemed like, um, fuck it, let's say the cunt's name, right? Katie Hopkins. She wrote this horrible thing um, which demonises immigrants, demonises refugees, demonises our fellow humans, right? I don't even repeat it. You know, and it's like the root of all racism is implying that another race or another people don't care about their children the way you do. Anytime you want to really dehumanize another people, you say they don't look after their kids, right? That's what I've noticed. And it made me angry and I had to deal with that. And it made me think, fuck you and the horse you rode in on. I'm more English than you could ever dream of being. This is my country. I have English values. Hashtag I'm proud to be English. And so my show this year is about how much I love this country and how, um, how much I, I love this geographical space that I was raised in. And because, uh, and I will no longer feel that I'm a guest here and I will no longer feel that people like her are natives or indigenous because if I check her DNA, guaranteed she won't be because none of us are indigenous everywhere. Um, and I think of that Woody Guthrie song, this land is your land, this land is my land. And Billy Bragg did a beautiful cover of that where he changed the lyrics to this land is your land, this land is my land, from the coast of Cornwall to the Scottish Highlands. That's inclusive. That's love that that's that's something that makes me feel like I belong and no I spent so much of my life feeling that the bullies the racists the Britain first the Katie Hopkinses they are bullies and they and they they thrive on terror they they make their money they feed their children from hate and so I wanted to do a show about loving the place that they say doesn't belong to me is it possible to to is it possible to do a show about love without needing to tether it to the reason you have to do a show about love because of these <laughs> hateful cunts? Hateful cunts. Yeah. I've, you know, I'm a massive contradiction. <laughs> I don't, I I don't mean, I'm not trying to disprove you at all. I think it's beautiful. But, uh, but you know, in, in talking to you now, um, my upset might come out and I'm not afraid of saying I find it hurtful. I find it hurtful and that's okay because I'm human. Gosh, you know, if other people found things hurtful, perhaps they'd be a bit more compassionate, right? That's possibly the most sanctimonious I've sounded <laughs> in a long no, time. I, I get where you're coming from. Like, it's okay to be hurt by this because it's awful. Yeah. And being hurt by it reminds you that this is awful and that this you're awful. not yeah. one of the people who thinks it's fine to say this. Yeah. Right? So, but then what I'm trying to do is understand, like, you know, at the moment we, we're in a situation in our country, and I love saying that, in our country, that um, when somebody, a normal person that has their own shit to deal with, has financial problems, um, has a concern about immigration, we scream racist in their face. And that's so damaging because then that allows you know, the, the Dementors, as I call them, mm. to come and embrace those people. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas we could think a different way and, and, and listen to people and understand them and, and, and go, I completely get your, your point of view. And that's, 
that's a really difficult situation for you to be in, but we're all in this together and, and let's go forward with hopefulness because ordinary people, normal people don't want to hate their neighbor. They want to help someone that falls over in the street and hurts themselves, whatever color or, or religion they are. But there's been a, um, a fake divide, um, a division that doesn't exist between humans, um, manufacturers which is the opposite of my (laughs) manufacturing common ground yeah um which i find a really frightening thing that's happening at the moment and i feel i guess subconsciously because of my own background i feel i I just i never sit down and go i'm going to write about this i never do that but that's what matters to me in my day-to-day life that's what i worry about when i look at my children i think well especially because my kids one of them one of my children is totally english the other one is totally Iranian. Um, Cassius, my older son, has a very, very um, close relationship with his in- very English father. And my daughter, although her father is also English, her, her biological um, is also English, but she's never met him. Um, and she couldn't be more Middle Eastern. And uh, so I have this totally like oh mummy i do like potted beef i had some at nana's house <laughs> to my daughter who's like oh my god that's meat in a can that's so weird <laughs> and um and it's really interesting how things are going to pan out for them because i think perhaps she's going to identify a lot more with you know being she, she's darker as well because so much of this comes down to skin color do you know someone said to me the other day um that well you're not you can't even be properly english because you weren't born here I was like, oh, right, so I wasn't born here, so I wasn't properly English. Okay, well, let me tell you that um, I've now found out in that case that uh, one of my comedy heroes is actually a Yemeni comedian called Eddie Izzard, because that's where he was born. And, uh, you know, our our celebrated Indian actress, Joanna Lumley. Oh, no, but their parents are English. Oh, right, so what about our Irish friend whose parents are Irish, but he speaks English and identifies as being English. Oh, he's allowed to be English, isn't he? Why mm. is that? Yeah. Why is that left-wing liberal person that's telling me I'm not probably English? It's because, you know, skin colour. And it's not a pretty thing to talk about. And and people think you have a chip on your shoulder, but there are certain realities about that's, it. I, I, I sometimes, I, one, one should never look at the YouTube comments, but uh, yeah. or, you know, the comments under articles and stuff. But sometimes when I'm prepping for interviews like this, I mm. try and get a sense of how, so, yeah. how a comic's output is received. Yeah. And the, the kind of the most tiresome, if you can take something hateful and, and mm. only complain that it's tiresome, aspect of a lot of the criticism you receive from awful people yeah. is it's that same old thing that I'm sure is leveled at so many non-white comedians. Yeah. That's all she talks That's about. That's all she talks about. Yeah. I always think we we'll stop looking at the same YouTube clip over and over again from 10 years ago. And, and that is, but that's what people want to see. And what they don't understand is that, mate, you don't like me. It's me you don't like. It's not my material. If I suddenly started talking about the fruit and veg section in the supermarket, you wouldn't suddenly think I'm brilliant. Yeah, you don't find another reason to hate you. Yeah, yeah. you know. Why does she just um, even talk about her race? Yeah, I know. <laughs> why does she even talk about well, her, you know. Got, so, you know, it's like, why? And the thing is, I did hang myself from a hook quite early on because in my 20s, I genuinely had an identity crisis about it because... Um, Oh, God. Okay, everyone not from London is going to officially hate me now. But until I did stand-up, 
I didn't travel around the country, really, except to go on, you know, holidays and stuff. Um, and suddenly I was 25 in Leeds with, um, you know, comedy audiences who are all in their 40s. And I myself attributed my not connecting to a huge extent to the fact that most of my material is about being Iranian. But looking back, I was young. I hadn't found my voice yet. I hadn't found a, a way to feel comfortable in my own skin yet. Um, but I did talk about the Iranian thing a lot. And because that then started to work, and because I was so bloody bulimic, I was um, stuck in the mud. And I, I couldn't f- find any reason for people to be interested in me talking about anything else. Um, and I look back on that and, and I think I was, I really was stuck in the mud, uh, for a long time. I just felt if I talk about anything else, no one will like it. No one will like it. I'm the, um, and I had to, um, get myself out of that, but it did stick, you know, it did. Cause you know, we've got the internet now we've got YouTube now. If people Google me, they'll find stuff. And to be perfectly fair as well, sometimes I do stuff on TV and they'd edit everything I said out apart from like one joke about being, Okay. Middle East, and that happened too. And again, you can't complain about it because I was on telly. I don't want to be on telly. Yes, and, and never, go, oh, they never... didn't. They didn't edit me well. Well, you know what? Get back to the fucking circus. Um, circus. <laughs> circus. <laughs> Get back to the circus, <laughs> you monkey. I mean, that is a whole other level of YouTube comment <laughs> oh hate. Oh my god! <laughs> you had a theory that. Um, uh, you for, for comic purposes, it might not be an actual mm-hmm. theory. We've talked about that um, about when men come up to you and go, "I norm- I don't normally find women funny, mm-hmm. um, but you are funny," which I think is a thing that a lot of people uh, experience. Actually, say women come up and say that. Yeah, right. They sure. think they're paying you the biggest compliment. Yes, oh, so unusual. Yeah. Um, not unusual, completely usual. Yeah, mind blowing. But yeah, apparently, it's so many. I've heard that from lots of different people. Um, you. You've, um, I think the line was, you said, yes, because you have to be relaxed to laugh. And if, oh, this isn't the line, I'm butchering it. But the premise was when men complain about women comics, it's because, like saying women aren't funny. Hmm. Your angle was that that's because you have to be relaxed in order to laugh and you're not relaxed as soon as you see a woman on oh, stage. Oh, I forgot I say oh, that. What a great bit. It's a great oh, bit. Oh, damn it. I should listen to my own self more. <laughs> Yeah, I said, you've got to be right. So if you if a woman comes on stage, you're like... Aah. Yeah, if you tense up and your neck swells. Yeah, yeah, you could, yeah. Like it, like if you're lost and you're really frustrated behind the wheel of a car, someone can crack the best joke in the world. You're like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> you know? Um, yes, there is that. There is that. And, and yeah, I must remember that. Um, and also, I remember starting stand-up and there were loads and loads of girls, women, um, in fact, on the open sports circus, and they, they disappear. I think my, my theory is that um, the rejection in stand-up when you die or when an agent says, oh, bugger off, I'm not going to manage you or the audience boo you off, um, the onus is always on guys to put themselves forward. Like they ask for pay rises more often because, and they, they approach women to chat them up, uh, to chat women up more often because that's the way our world is set up and... Um, and the rejection, like if a girl turns around to you in a nightclub and goes, I don't think so, fuck off, I'm with my friends, that guy will go out and chat another girl up. Whereas if, if a guy told me, fuck off, I'm not interested, I'm with my mates, I would cry and go home. 
it's it's that being rejected and soldiering on being rejected and soldiering on and I think what I say is men can't do what we do when we feel rejected they can't run off into the toilet and cry and if they did their friends wouldn't run in afterwards to reassure them that they're pretty and I find that the ones that soldier on dying 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 and continuing um back when I started were more often the men but I think women are just changing now culture changes so blah blah women in comedy I mean, I, I, I really, uh, I really want to go. So, what's it like? But I, mean, I would never, I wouldn't dream of doing that. <laughs> well, do you know, it's interesting now because it is. It's everyone's talking about it now, and I don't think there's a woman comic that doesn't talk about feminism in her show yep. now. Whereas for me, the race thing was such a big deal. I didn't realize that I was a woman comic for ages. <laughs> for ages, yeah. I didn't. It, I didn't compute. <laughs> That 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 might be an issue. Um, yeah, I, I think part of the reason I, I bring it up is it's it's a really you bit of material because it's mm. or it's a really good example of a thing that you do very well, which is that you take. Uh, I mean, your your punchline density is fantastic because you Thank are you. very good at getting something that someone else might get five minutes out of, boiling it down to exactly the point. Bang! There's the punchline. Next bit. Do you think that's, that's fair? Oh, that's really interesting. What a positive way to look at it. Whereas I always see that as, you didn't mind that material. <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah. What have we learned? Comedians will never be happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I think you are. I think you're good. You know, you get, that's a, that's a big topic you're talking about there, but you're yeah. not doing it, uh, I mean, although it's, it is done with lightness, you're not treating it casually. You're going, yeah. what's this about? What is going on? That is the perfect example. Yes, men do not follow each other into the toilets and go, are you all right? You know, don't worry, you're yeah. pretty. And that says everything you need to about the difference between two different, uh, you know, gender-based yeah. and constructed approaches to, to something. Damn, and, clever. I mean, well, no, I mean, you, you're almost, it's like your jokes, they, they kind of... They they fit the form of a one-liner comic almost, or they kind of tend. You're, you're nearer that end of the spectrum. Yes, I each- am. Thank you for noticing that. Yeah. Oh, do you, okay. Why yeah. why does that make you happy to have that noticed? Oh, because I you know People I don't I, spot that. I cut my teeth at Jonglers, and and I I used to be complimented on my one-liner capacity, like machine gun fire. Yeah. And then you start doing shows. And I still do that. And there's a snobbery that somehow, because you do one-liners and you're not being pithy and uh, whatever. Um, because you do stories, because you do longer bits, do you mean? I'm yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I, I think I, I, am a, I, am, I am a... I look at my... Like, I can't cope with a long story without rat-tat-tat punchlines. Um, and, and, and in the culture of Edinburgh... And it, I feel I, I feel I sort of was, I'm lucky in that I have two worlds in that I cut my, my teeth on the stand up circuit at Jonglers and, and, and clubs like that where you're not, you're not really permitted to have flights of fan, fancy. Um, but then I do, you know, Edinburgh shows where the, the fashion to an extent is, um, Hey, it doesn't make you laugh out loud, but it's just so interesting, like having a nice warm bath, that kind of thing, and which is fine and perfect, and I adore shows that are like that as well. 
But then what happens, talking about a divide that aren't really there, there was then a bit of a backlash against club comics. And club comics would go, yeah, but they can't nail jonglers. And the sort of like flights of fancy comics were like, uh, you know, you're, you play to stag and hen nights, which I think is a very noble thing to do. And I think, um, I got very annoyed for a while because I felt there was such a snobbery towards club comedians of which I worked so hard to become. I am so proud. I am so proud of the fact that I can walk on stage in front of a beery, leery audience and make the fuckers laugh and be that gladiatorial comedian. And I worked hard to be that way. And I feel that um, circuit stand-ups, we're at the, we are at the front line of show business. You know, we're the foot soldiers. You know, we take a hit for the team. We've, we've allowed this, this whole, industry to become so big <laughs> that you can do you know 20 minutes of gentle laughs about you know the cushion you made earlier today which again is a beautiful thing <laughs> art is art okay i'm yep. not i would never put myself in a position to judge someone else's art form but i i i will challenge anyone who gets snobby about the circuit and being a club comic and it's it's used as a derogatory word um and i think if you use it as a derogatory term you're not a stand-up comedy fan you don't know your art you don't know what the fuck you're talking about and this is where i'm getting angry and i'm not going to put this anger in any of my show <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to put this anger in your show no i hate it's it's really yeah it's, it's better now, but for a time there was this, this divide that didn't really exist. And, and, yeah. and yet comics are pitted against comics. What you do isn't comedy. No, sure. what you do isn't comedy. We're all doing comedy. Shut up. Uh, b- beautiful woman. Um, um, Roisin. Mm-hmm. Roisin um, Connerty. Uh, she said what she really made me laugh on. She goes, oh, I'm getting sick of people going on about they don't like club stand-ups. It's like, look, I don't particularly like jazz. I don't bang on about why I don't like jazz or I don't like jazz. That's fine. You go and listen to, to something else then. Mm. Let us listen to jazz. And, and that's how I, that she, she did that perfectly. It's like we're all in the same universe of live work. Yeah. And there is absolutely no reason to uh, degrade one area of it. Let's just, before we, before we finish, let's just talk about the book because the reviews have been unbelievable. I haven't read the book. I haven't had mm-hmm. time to read the book. Um, it's been released. Has no, it? 28th these are, these are of July, reviews. yeah. I couldn't have read the book. I don't need to feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> but the reviews are eye-poppingly, oh my God, how is how are you managing to write this evocatively? I mean, you, you must to be pretty excited away. about it. I have to tell you. Because this is, this, is, this is a novel. So there's a lot of uh, comedy books out at the moment. People yeah. are kind of, I wonder if there is a sort of a, oh, you can't sell DVDs anymore. Let's get a book out there. There seems to be an awful lot of comedians' books. Mm. But this isn't autobiographical. no. And it's not, I mean, it's a novel. It's a, a novel. proper novel. It's a proper Your novel. Your first proper novel. My first proper novel. And I don't, you know that thing, comedians hate it when other comedians retweet twi- um, praise, right? Yeah. I've, I've never really needed to do a stand-up because my reviews are always a bit like, yeah, she's just doing her <laughs> thing. But I've been retweeting stuff about my book because um, it's overwhelmed me. The response of readers has really overwhelmed me. Um, and I want to tell people about it because I want people to read my book. Um, and I'm really confident about it and I, um, I'm just 
done and I'm so excited about it coming out because I think if if people like it and they read it then I might get another book deal and I'll get to write another novel and that's a dream come true that I that 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 seemed as realistic as going to the moon writing a novel I've always wanted to do it since I was a child and I feel with stand up and the book I feel I have kept my promises to 10 year old me like I'll get you there don't worry I'll get you writing a book because writing a book was my absolute dream come true and to have people read it and connect with it weird thing though Stuart I know we're we're rushed for time now but when people write a nasty thing about my stand-up it hurts my feelings but if people don't like my book I mean I haven't read a bad review about this book but I have about my old book they're not not horrible but if people go no it wasn't for me I go oh well you didn't get it Oh, poor you. You didn't get it. I feel the it. same about this podcast. Isn't it, I, it, like, isn't taking that a thing away from it being you yeah. allows you to just believe in it in a different way. Yeah. And go, oh, you can, you can take it or leave it. It's yeah. totally fine. Doesn't, doesn't affect me in the way that if yeah. you went, you stand up shit, you'd be mortified, you'd yeah. be crushed. But that's something I got by um, having a chat with Dr. Brown after one of his shows uh, where he says, oh, and, and I, you know, he was telling me about the process of building his show. And he goes, and I did it in New Zealand and the audience didn't get it. And I love that. He, they didn't get it. Not like I bombed, I died, yeah, I was right. shit. They didn't get it. So that's my new um, way to describe my <laughs> death. They didn't get it tonight. Pull them. <laughs> Maybe they'll get it tomorrow. Maybe I'll get it tomorrow. Did you sit down on day one and go, I'm just trying to visualise what it looks like to start writing a book. Mm. Did you sit down at a computer with a blank document open and go, day one, I'm going to write my book now. Begin. No. I didn't write anything for ages. I put a sticker on my laptop saying it's not going to write itself. No, I um, tried to write a novel a while ago and was laughed out of town. Um, it was awful. It was, um, oh, it was not good. Go on, go on. What was it? It was, it was, oh, it was just, like, I went out with this rock star and it was about a girl that went out with a rock star. It was shit. It was so bad. And I was pregnant and I cannot be creative in any shape or form when I was pregnant. And what happened was um, I was pregnant and alone. Um, I was going to have the baby on my own and I'm supporting my son on my own as well. And my motivation, I'm ashamed to admit, was I could get a big chunk of change for this. And this could sort me out financially. And I learned a very harsh lesson that if, if, if um, money is your motivation for a creative work, it will be shit. But I forgive myself because I was pregnant and alone and really like, what the fuck am I going to do? So I left it and then I had an idea. I had an idea and I had a storyline and the begin, middle and end was already settled in my head. And I spoke to the publishers and I wrote the treatment. I wrote the first chapter and I knew exactly where I was going. What I've learned in this business is no one goes, let's give her a go. People (laughs) want to follow your own game plan for yourself. If you look, when I went to see my um, agent, my late agent, Addison Cresswell, when I moved to Off the Curb, who absolutely changed my life, um, what was it, 10 years ago, I had, I'd been to see other agents and they've and gone, well, you know, I just want to work. I just want to do stand up. But with him, I went, I want this. I want this. I want this. And I saw the bigger picture and he took me on. 
And I've learned that you've got to see the bigger picture and people have got to see you seeing the bigger picture in order to take a punt on you. Um, you know, trying to ride along on your sort of, you know, that cup of tea <laughs> wasn't really getting me anywhere. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of growing up to do. Some people are like that at 20. Blimey, amazes me when I see comics that just come out of the egg fully formed. Amazes me. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 